Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, an independent RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. I would just like to say I am now the proud owner of an Xbox Series X. Oh my god, you did it. You got a next-gen console. I did, although it's it's coming in February, but I did grab one. <laughs> Wait, you said I'm now the proud owner, but it's not arrived yet, so you're not the proud owner. No, but they took my money out, so they better damn well deliver it. <laughs> So you own it. It's just not in your house at the moment. I own it in theory. That's true. <laughs> All right. Well, at some point, we're going to have to talk about the various Xbox Series X RPGs. Maybe maybe we'll do a console RPG quest on it. Yes, I don't think we're going to have any problem coming up with content for that because Microsoft basically owns the Western <laughs> RPG market now. Oh, my God. They kind of do, don't they? They do. I mean, they've they've got Bethesda. That alone just gives us a ton of to, to talk about. Well, in the meantime, we're going to be talking about old stuff, Nadia, because that is what something that we enjoy talking about. We do. Old stuff for old people. And specifically, we will be talking about the 90s anime we loved and the RPGs they created. And we're going to have a couple of special guests, Bob Mackey and Henry Gilbert. Bob is returning to the podcast for the first time in quite a while. They're the hosts of the Talking Simpsons Network, as well as Retronauts. So it's going to be, we, we just got done recording with them, Nadia, and it was a really fun conversation. It was. Uh, it's always a thrill to talk to them about uh, not just older RPGs, but anything to do with cartoons. They know they know it all. We'll be getting to the RPG news in just a second, but first a little bit of housekeeping. If you enjoy the podcast, do us a favor. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or the podcatcher of your choice. It increases the visibility of the podcast and also brightens our day. You can also follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. I'm on Twitch at twitch.tv slash TV, where Nadia and I are doing a playthrough of Final Fantasy VI as we speak. And also, Axe of the Blood God is on Twitter and Instagram. Over on Twitter, we have all of the announcements of the show. And also, we tweet out RPG news as we find it and talk about anniversaries and all that fun stuff. And the odd Bernie Sanders meme, apparently, because Bernie has been, <laughs> been memed heavily lately. <laughs> He is mean heavily because he kind of showed up at the inauguration dressed up like my grandfather, which is pretty perfect. Yeah, I think my favorite one was the Xenogears one. <laughs> I didn't see that one. What, ha- what Did they like crucify him or something? In the second half of Xenogears, Saiten is kind of telling the story, like narrating the story. Mm-hmm. And they photoshopped Bernie in instead telling the story of Xenogears. <laughs> That's actually pretty perfect. There was also a good one from Final Fantasy IX where it said 99 out of 100 of nobles approve and Bernie's just sitting there going, Err. Yeah, I saw that. That one was fantastic. They're all pretty fantastic. And Instagram, uh, we like to post interesting concept art and everything from different RPGs as well as info on the different shows. So both are worth following. And of course, if you really enjoy the show, can I recommend that you follow our Patreon, patreon.com slash bloodgodpod. And $5 patrons and above have access to our television of the blood god, Witcher Watch, which is just recently wrapped up its fifth episode. You can listen to all of that over there. We've been having a really good time talking about the Witcher, Nadia. We have. I've actually been really enjoying myself. I'm sad that it's going to come to an end soon, but uh, the new season should be starting eventually. We're also in the middle of the Pantheon of the Blood God play of Lufia 2. If you join our Discord, you can join in on the game club. A bunch of people are playing Lufia 2 and talking about it. We are, you know, about 20, 30 hours in at this point. And then at the beginning of February, we are going to record a big old episode where we talk through it, talk about its history, its development and everything, and make the ultimate decision, does Lufia 2 deserve to be in the pantheon of the blood god? All right. 
let's continue on to the RPG news. Nadia, first thing is first. If you are a Fallout New Vegas fan, Nadia, well, a gigantic piece of content just dropped courtesy to of a bunch of independent developers. It is a huge mod, a mod that was so big, in fact, that it destroyed Nexus mods for a bit, which is pretty amazing. <laughs> I have heard about this mod. It's supposed to be pretty incredible. Yeah, it's a totally new map set in Portland, Oregon. And it's nearly as big as the map in Fallout 3 and about as big as the one in Fallout New Vegas. You can align with three different factions in it, the NCR, the Northern Legion, or the Crusaders of Steel in three major quest lines. And there are over 60 side quests as well. It's pretty freaking, it's, it's what an amazing undertaking, I have to say. It basically is an entire game for free. I mean, I'm assuming it's free that you can Mm -hmm. uh, play and if you want a new uh, Fallout New Vegas experience, it sounds it sounds pretty fantastic. Are you going to go for it? I would if I had time. <laughs> there is that. There's always the time thing. I kind of want to play it just so I can talk about it on the podcast or talk about it elsewhere because it sounds really interesting, you know? I actually am, have huge respect for fan games that put so much effort and time into them. And I wonder what the people who do it, what what they get out of it. And I'm glad that they do. Don't get me wrong, but... I'm supposing, is it good for your portfolio? Is it good for practice? Is it good for... Oh, yeah, for... totally is. Okay, so it's a little bit like writing fan fiction, but somewhat more involved, I would say. Fan fiction that you can then say, hey, I made this incredible mod for this game. I know the the tool set in and out. You should hire me. Yeah, okay, that's actually very practical. And everyone wins. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, it just goes to show the longevity, longevity of Fallout New Vegas, a game that was on our top 25 RPGs. It's been about six years at this point, Nadia, since we've last had a new Fallout single-player experience. I wouldn't really call count Fallout New Vegas in that category. So this is about as close as we're going to get. Yes, definitely. And if it broke Nexus mods for a while, then it means people are actually still quite <laughs> thirsty for that single-player People are downloading experience. it like crazy. Yep. So there you go. Hey, uh, Bethesda, Obsidian, everybody, people still like New Vegas, just just saying. Staying on the Western RPG tip, Eurogamer has this interesting report about a game called Revolver, which apparently began life, Nadia, as a sequel to Jade Empire. It was being developed between 2005-2008. It started life as a sequel to Jade Empire, but very quickly became its own thing. Uh, words like sandbox and parkour were involved, and it just goes to show that maybe Bioware was kind of going in weird directions even longer, or much earlier than we have, could have ever guessed. Bioware has been going through its uh, weird teenage phase for a while now, I guess. But the concept art was pretty cool. Yeah, it looks pretty cool. Um, just never anything really came of it, huh? No, I guess. Um, well, you know how it goes. So many games get developed for a while and then just ultimately canceled. Yeah, and I sometimes wonder about the work that goes into even the early stuff, especially the concept art, and how sometimes that that gets lost, and it makes me a little sad. Moving over to the Japanese side, here's a thing that I'm enjoying. Twitter is playing Pokemon right now, Nadia. (laughs) Okay, I remember Twitch playing Pokemon, and that was a total goat rodeo, so Twitter playing Pokemon must be worse somehow. So the way it works is that a Twitter account has it where if you reply with up, down, left, right, A, B, start, or select, you can basically crowdsource a move into the game. And what's really remarkable is that they've actually been able to make progress. 
as of January 20th, they had defeated Lieutenant Surge. So they have wow. three badges, Nadia. Okay. So I, it was weird enough with Twitch and watching that whole thing was a real phenomenon because that's where it all started. People have been doing Twitch plates, whatever, like ever since. But just remembering all the memes that came out of that and how that Pidgeot survived that explosion and you know, all hail Helix and just... Uh, I'm looking forward to more weird memes coming from Twitter doing the exact same thing. And uh, gosh, I can't believe they've already beaten three badges. Squirtle is a war turtle now, and it's named uh, Maybe. <laughs> uh, maybe. <laughs> and there's a Geodude nicknamed Abpre. <laughs> I'm assuming these are all just random inputs that happened. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Staying on the Japanese side... Let's talk a little bit about Bravely Default 2, Nadia. We had talked a little bit about the uh, demo that had come out and how it's been basically being, uh, like improvements have been made on it over recent time. Well, one of the producers commented on it and said that they were, quote, ashamed and relieved by the feedback that Bravely Default 2 had gotten. Here's a longer quote. The list of things we changed was endless. To put it simply, we pulled the camera back slightly in dungeons. People who played the demo felt it was too easy to get lost in dungeons and that they got attacked by off-screen monsters, so we addressed those concerns by pulling the camera back. We also cleaned up the faces on character icons and shops and menus. We didn't change the models or anything. We just adjusted the shadows to make things look nicer. Additionally, we added the ability to compare new weapons and armor in shops. I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, but this is a feature that should have been in the game. We just weren't able to implement it in time for the first demo. But demos, I mean, you want to cut them some slack. Demos are hard to make. Yeah, demos are hard to make. And also, one thing I actually really like about what they're doing right now is so many of the suggestions they are getting and they are implementing are quite simple. Move the camera back, fix the shadows up a little bit, uh, put in this feature that just totally slipped our mind because we were so preoccupied. Uh, that's the kind of stuff that if you... It's just far preferable to facing it now with fan feedback than to waiting and releasing the game and having people say, oh, all these simple things, why didn't you fix them? So I really appreciate what they're doing. And I think even though it is probably a little bit embarrassing to have so much like uh, so much criticism rain down on you, in the end, it's going to make for a much better product. Speaking of embarrassing and a game that could have been a much better product. Segway. Cyberpunk 2077, it just can't stay out of the news, Nadia. It keeps throwing off heat like a radioactive core. Last week, so we recorded, so CD Projekt released a statement that we talked about in the previous episode, but we finished recording before Bloomberg dropped its latest kind of uh, expose on Cyberpunk 2077, courtesy of Jason Schreier, who's been on the show before. And a lot of info that just does not cast CD Projekt in a good light, Nadia, including how it was basically a free-for-all production and the E3 demo almost entirely fake. Jeez, that's... The E3 demo thing is so disappointing, but so not surprising. The whole thing when you read it is just, quote-unquote, Bioware Magic Part 2, where they believed everything would come together in the end, and uh, it didn't come together very well. It'll be fine, everybody. We made The Witcher 3. Uh, great, you guys did a great job with Witcher 3, and you did a great thing, but uh, let's not forget Witcher 3 needed a lot of fixing when it came out, and one game is one game, and Cyberpunk is a much different game aesthetically, and CD Projekt Red has admitted itself, programming a flat fantasy world versus 
a, a cyberpunk world full of skyscrapers is two totally different things. With many cars and many NPCs doing things. Exactly. We're not talking about Geralt alone in the fields. We're talking about uh, streets full of cars and people and buildings. And how did you not foresee that being a problem on the PlayStation 4? There was a really long video. It's like 45 minutes. And it for a huge part of it is just overlaying the pre-release hype with what actually happens in the final game, like all the bugs and everything. And one of the big ones was they were promising that all of the NPCs in Cyberpunk 2077 would have their own routines and they would be doing all of these throughout the day. They would be doing all of these different things. And then they pulled the camera back and the NPCs are literally just walking in circles <laughs> in one big loop. I've seen something like that. And not only are the NPCs walking in circles or into walls, but it's the same model used over and over and over, like the same pink-haired uh, woman with a blue skirt or a blue jacket. It was so it, it was so depressing. I don't want to bore people by continuing to go back to Cyberpunk 2077 being a huge problem and a huge mess. But just every single week, new details come out that make you go, oh, my God. And it feels like a lot is coming out right now. A lot is coming out. Management is almost entirely to blame. I wanted Cyberpunk 2077 to be good. I want a good RPG in my life. And the fact that they pushed back against Schreier and his article by saying, oh, you only interviewed 20 people out of 500 and most of them were anonymous. How can you even say that instead of crawling under a rock and trying to get your shit together? Well, I guess they're feeling a little chastened at this point. There is a bit of good news, though. Modders are already hard at work on Cyberpunk, Nadia, including adding tons of new customization options. So that's nice. I could see this being a modder's playground. I really can. Final piece of news, Nadia. Uh, a little while ago, we said that we were kind of hoping that Kingdom of Amalur Reckoning, the Reckoning would get a re-release of some sort. And it did. It was Kingdom of Amalur Re-Reckoning. It came out late last year on most of the major platforms. Well, it's coming out again. March 16th for Nintendo Switch. So if you have a Switch, you can play the game that 38 Studios actually managed to release uh, that didn't quite sink the studio. That was the MMORPG. I think last time we were talking about this, I said, oh, isn't that the baseball guy? And you said, yeah, it's the baseball guy. Kurt Schilling. I think I was watching someone play the original game not that long ago. It seemed it seemed pretty fun. I will warn you that that game is like mid-2000s as F. Yeah, see, that's the thing. I could see it being charming for its time, but... One of those games that has been surpassed several times over since. Yeah, it looked pretty cool for the time. I don't know that it's necessarily held up that well today. It's very hardcore. It's like the Todd McFarlane look. I don't like it. Oh, right. Yeah, that was a very 2000s thing and early, uh, late 90s thing as well. Yeah, so it looks a little dated on that front, but it still plays pretty well. Yeah, if you, I guess if you want a solid RPG, action RPG, go for it. All right, that is all of our RPG news. We're going to continue on now to the next segment, the 90s anime we loved and the RPGs they created. So don't go away. I'll kill you. Okay, it's time to talk about the 90s anime we loved and the RPGs they created. And we have a couple of special guests doing that. Who is with me right now? Hey, everybody. It's Bob Mackey of the Talking Simpsons Network. How are you doing? And hey, it's Henry Gilbert, also of that same network. <laughs> Hi. 
Bob Mackie, of course, is an old friend. You were on the very first episode of Axe of the Bloodgun, if I recall correctly. If it was a US, I mean, it was a US gamer thing, so I, I think I would have to be. Yes. Very Bye exciting. Long. And I think this is Henry's first uh, trip on to the Blood God. Yes, I, I. This is my first time. Thanks for having me on. I, uh, I am an an RPG freak. So, uh, but I, I don't. <laughs> uh, I am one of your listeners who's like enough of this Western RPG stuff. Where's <laughs> the Japan? <laughs> I'm when sorry. Get to Japan. <laughs> uh, What's yeah. funny is that we have the people who are like, uh, "Acts of the Blood God." All they talk about is JRPGs, and then you have the JRPG folks who are like, "You know what? Acts of the Blood God really needs to talk more about JRPGs." <laughs> I, uh, I mean, and I am a, I, I am a big addict of, of uh, RPGs. I just, uh, boy, at 90 hours, I put into y- Yakuza Like a Dragon. I was close to platinuming it, but. I the, the the I really hit a wall on my ability to win in those kart races yeah. late in the game, but that was the last thing. Well, you guys already mentioned that you are part of the Talking Simpsons network, which includes What a Cartoon. You guys have been phenomenally successful, and obviously, we're like, oh man, Axel Blood God Patreon. Let's follow in your footsteps. What have you guys been up to lately? Oh, uh, lots of really great stuff. We just hit our $15,000 goal, which means that uh, Talking Futurama, our, our miniseries we've been doing for a few years, that is now a monthly series. And we have another uh, miniseries coming up in the spring, uh, Talking of the Hill Season 2 Part 1. And we go over King of the Hill like we do with The Simpsons and other cartoons. Yeah, and uh, in the coming month, we have some really cool stuff coming to the What a Cartoon podcast where we're covering. I guess uh, if you're a gamer, you would probably like hearing our one about Digimon Adventure, the the original pilot movie for Digimon. And uh, we're doing Adventure Brothers 1. And, uh, you know, back in December, we just did our longest podcast ever, five hours about the end of Evangelion. Uh-huh. Oh, oh my, my god, god. <laughs> that's a correct response <laughs> yes. somehow i'm not surprised it took five hours i just want to say by the way uh talking of the hill is a fantastic name for your podcast oh thank you it oh, was, yeah the, the name of the show was perfectly designed to become a podcast <laughs> uh, yeah, so we take partial credit from the start that was uh yeah you that was Hank going what you listening to son <laughs> <laughs> no it's great the first episode of king of the hill has him holding uh headphones to his head it's the perfect way to promote any episode <laughs> <Toilet> noises. yeah <laughs> Well, as you guys already mentioned, you did a five-hour podcast on End of Evangelion, which means that you're perfectly positioned to help us out with our theme of this week's episode, which is talking about kind of the interconnected nature of anime in the 90s and RPGs. And it's a relationship that in many ways continues to this day. So I'm just going to start out by asking, what anime were you watching most in the 90s? What was your anime life back then? I'll start really quickly for myself. I think the first anime that I watched as anime for real was Oh My Goddess because a friend who I was in a writing group with sent me the VHS through the mail. And that is how I discovered the wonders of anime. And it was a subtitled episode. I was like, oh, my God, they're speaking Japanese. This is like really like crazy. Wow. What am I watching? Uh, But I got really into it. And then when I enjoyed Oh My Goddess, that was the gateway into Evangelion and Slayers and Rama one half and. Well, that formed the cat that you know and love today. How about you, Nadia? Uh, It's funny. Growing up in the 80s, uh, Canada had a lot of low-rent anime that was dubbed over. Uh, I don't know if you all remember the Wizard of Oz series, uh, which was Mm. actually my first experience with a connected storyline. And that just really, really enthralled me. And it had an opening theme by the Parachute Club, which is a 
Hmm. A Canadian band I know and love very much. I think that was on HBO in the States. That Wizard of Oz anime? I think I remember seeing it there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It was on like public access television in Ontario, which is how I actually got to watch it because it uh, didn't have any fancy dancy cable back then. Hmm. So once I hit the 90s, though, it was uh, Canada really sucked at getting anime except for, again, the low rent uh, stuff that you could that was based on literature. Uh, I did watch the Dragon Ball dub that came out that everyone watched back in the day. And I also, ironically, there was one anime that really, really took off in Canada, and that was the original, the first run of Sailor Moon, which kind of fizzled out in the States because it had a bad time slot, as I understand it, but it was on directly after school in Canada, and it just went, it was like, extremely popular. I watched it all the time. Uh, the Bare Naked Ladies referenced it in one week because it was so popular <laughs> at the time. And actually, my sister-in-law, who's from Trinidad, uh, when she came to Canada, she learned English through Sailor Moon dubs. So oh, wow. that's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. And, and I mean, most of those actors in the Sailor Moon dubs were Canadian as well. They were Canadian, actually. And you guys are really, really into obscure cartoons. Do you Have you ever heard of a Canadian cartoon that was terrible called Quads? No, no, actually. <laughs> it was a really, really filthy cartoon. And Sailor Moon's original voice actress was on that as a, the girlfriend of the main character. So imagine Sailor Moon's voice saying things like, oh, my God, you smell like the water buffalo's ass. And <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> it's wow. a really terrible cartoon, but it's hilarious for that reason alone. I think I'll tune in just Look for that. that. Nadia, I feel like I've learned so much about you just from that. <laughs> I live in a strange land. Henry, how about you? Uh, you know, for me, I definitely had the childhood of watching things that were in the 80s that were anime, but I didn't know that they were a Japanese animation production, yes. uh, like Voltron or uh, in on Nickelodeon, they had Bell and Sebastian, which uh, not, oh, I love that show. Uh, yeah, about a big dog and a little boy. And and so I had those shows and I enjoyed them. Uh, but when I the first unedited anime I watched were 80s stuff like Akira, uh, also Ninja Scroll. Like that was when I, I I had a friend who was like, see, anime's not for kids. <laughs> mm, that was the show to show that anime is not for kids. I think we had it air on Teletoon back in the day. And I remember, just remember all the boys at work the next day saying, oh, my God, his mouth went around her booby or something like that. <laughs> I remember being 16 and thinking unironically, you know, anime is basically perfect. There is no flaw to anime. <laughs> it's, uh, it's the perfect medium. Yeah. And uh, Ron One Half uh, was like the big doorway for me into watching, you know, more than just a film. That's when I would watch TV shows. And I I uh, did Ron One Half and then pretty much all the Rumiko Takahashi content uh, as well. And then in 1997, I super got into Evangelion. And then 98 and 99 was me getting into Gundam and Cowboy Bebop. And of course, that was also in the later 90s was when Cartoon Network started showing Dragon Ball Z and it became this uh, ratings titan for them. And that's when I super got into Dragon Ball as well. But that it felt not cool enough to like Dragon Ball. I'd be like, yeah, Dragon Ball is fine. But did you guys watch the thing you got to buy a VHS tape to watch? Because that's mm. cooler. And I bought that. What always took me off guard was that I felt like people were making fun of Dragon Ball Z because it had a very, it had that distinct art style, right? That was kind of an acquired taste. So it took me off guard years later when I was like, no, actually, everybody loved Dragon Ball and it was a pillar and a foundation, a foundational anime for the Western expansion of the medium over here. 
I wonder if it's because it was one of those things that everyone made fun of at the time and pretended not to like, but then it became cool to admit I liked but it. But in fact, they were all watching it. <laughs> of course. I mean, uh, we all were. I, I, all the episodes of screaming and squatting. I, I can just tell you in my suburban Florida high school that it was a huge hit. with ju- It was a crossover hit yeah. with most boys and, and, and girls, too. And like... Uh, I remember seeing a number of people wearing the button-up t-shirts that were just a print of Dragon Ball art. Just some flames, oh, some flames classic. in the background. Yes, red, yes. Uh, orange and blue all <laughs> over it. God. And how about you, Bob? Uh, as for me, similar origin story to Henry, where I grew up watching anime not knowing it was anime, you know, because a lot of our American cartoons were animated in Japan, looking very nice. But it wasn't until 1993 that a little man named Roger Ebert told me what anime was, because as an 11-year-old, of course I was watching At the Movies with Siskel and Ebert. What else would you watch if you were 11 years old? That's why I'm doing this now. But he, his video pick of the week was My Neighbor Totoro, and that came out in the States. Fox released it in the States on VHS, so he explained to me what anime was, and I was like, of course, the things I like come from japan so that put it all together and i went scrounging for as much as i could find which meant renting every inappropriate thing from the video store that i just thought was a cartoon <laughs> seeing a lot of bad stuff like the fatal fury movie the samurai showdown <gasps> movie the tekken movie the fire emblem ova just all these random things you saw the fire emblem ova they released that here before too, anyone yeah. knew what fire emblem was please tell me it was wow. the the dub but mars that it, one right oh, it yeah. definitely was the dub and Hell then yes. it was like really scattershot and and then my first girlfriend in high school had like access to all of these fan subs. So with her, we watched like uh, Slayers and Tenchi Moyo and Gunsmith Cats and so many other things. And uh, when the DVD era came about, that is when it really hit for me because I started going to anime conventions. I was an anime reviewer online for about three or four years and uh, just very tapped into that world until around like 2007. So it all started in the 90s and just just trying to find whatever anime I could, what anime was hard to find. What's interesting about this period is that anime was definitely exploding in the West, but so many games that were based on anime just weren't coming over here. Instead, I would say that a lot of the energy that was kind of being created by the anime fandom was being channeled into games like, say, Final Fantasy VII. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you think of this era, too, of like these uh, so many publishers in the U.S., didn't want to put anime style mm-hmm. art on the cover of things like mm-hmm. they they turn away from this great art and they, they'd be like oh the kids will be confused by it. they need something that looks american like just look at like the street fighter cover art and you see the difference there and from u.s to to japan same with uh, Dragon Quest, of course, didn't have Toriyama's artwork at first. Although they did have a West, the Western version did kind of adapt his style in, a, in its own way. And I think that's extremely interesting. Hmm. But the point is they were, they did change those anime characters to like more uh, Western uh, sort of aesthetics, uh, most infamously for the Breath of Fire boxes. Oh, yeah. And I think also uh, because things took much longer to get to America back then. By the time an anime hit in America, the game that came out was the previous generation. So they couldn't just bring that out because like when Dragon Ball Z was popular on Toonami in 1998, we were all watching 1989 TV episodes and we didn't really know unless you went online. And like, yeah, you can play the Dragon Ball Z game. Do you have a Famicom? Because that's what it's for. (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't the first localized Dragon Ball uh, Z game here. Like some, it wasn't even Z. It was like a really terrible GT game. 
Yeah, Dragon Ball GT Final Bout, and if you worked at a GameStop in the early 2000s, that was like the Ark of the Covenant. You had to call your <laughs> district manager if that came in, because we offered $120 in store credit for it, and we sold it for $300 used. Wow. Wow. Yeah. If, if you walk into a GameStop and somebody offers you actually a good amount of money for it, you need to leave there right now because it's probably worth $1,000. Yeah. And I think, yeah. I think before Legacy of Goku for the Game Boy Advance, that was the only uh, known Dragon Ball game outside of Dragon Power for the NES, which just doesn't really count. It was the same kind of with Gundam, where if you got really into Gundam Wing, well, the problem was the only real Gundam Wing game was for the Super NES, and this was sort of like 1998, 1999, so the Super NES was very much out of date. Though Gundam Battle Assault 2 came out around this time, and I think they specifically added in the suits uh, and pilots from Gundam Wing to Gundam Battle Assault 2 just to appeal to North American fans. So they did their best, cool. but it wasn't that, but it wasn't perfect, I would say. Uh, so let's talk about some ways that games based on anime evolved and changed over the 90s. I would say that definitely the genres changed a bit. Uh, definitely the 80s were kind of more platformer heavy uh, in many ways. And then by the 90s, I would say that we were getting a lot more fighting games. If you go through the various anime adaptations and licensed games that were happening on the Super NES, uh, there were definitely a lot of Street Fighter clones, especially with Rama One Half. That was a big one for that. Mm -hmm. And then also tactics RPGs came into vogue thanks to Fire Emblem and then a little later Final Fantasy Tactics. Uh, Super Robot Wars got its start on the Game Boy in 1991. 16-bit um, consoles were really nice because they allowed for a lot more detailed sprites. And over here... Over in North America, I feel like we were getting a lot of games based on like Looney Tunes and everything because it was like, oh, it looks just like a cartoon. Yeah. This is incredible. <laughs> Whereas over in Japan, you were getting a lot of games that, well, were based on anime because now you could have these really complex sprites and you're like, wow, it looks just like the show. Yeah, uh, it really bridged the gap by that point with all, especially on the SNES with all the uh, the expanded color palette. So you actually were playing, it, it, it matched up nicely because you were playing anime style games that actually looked like the anime it all kind of converged nicely in the, at that uh, era no i i was a big fan of um uh, other rumiko takashi stuff like meizani koku and uh urusei atsura and in both those cases i i looked up their famicom games and um the one for lum looks so simple like mm. she's like five uh pixels or whatever and the the meizani koku one they did like a visual novel so they could at least have good uh, solo screenshots of the characters. Yeah, one thing I like about Japanese licensed games compared to American ones, I mean, a lot of them are still bad, but I feel like every American licensed game was a crappy platformer or occasionally a fighting game. With Japanese licensed games, you get like RPGs or visual novels or adventure games, a lot of different ideas just because those genres were more popular in Japan at the time. That's true, yeah. Uh, we did tend to get uh, a lot of really bad platformers and for some reason i can't get out of my head right now is dennis the menace like <laughs> just there God, yeah, that happened. why were these games happening who were the audience for these games someone was buying them it sure people who enjoyed the dennis the menace movie they wanted <laughs> to experience it at home 32-bit consoles started to introduce feet, uh, fully animated intros uh, and games like soccer wars definitely leaned really heavily into their anime aesthetic and then they spun up into their own shows one of the things about the 90s was that it was a, actually a really rough time for the anime industry because 
a lot of the actual anime had become very stale. Gundam had definitely become stale by the mid-90s, though most Americans don't remember it that way. And also the bubble bursting in the Japanese economy hurt a lot as well. So I think that there was a, a real kind of hunt for finding new ideas, new IPs, anything that you could spin into a multimedia franchise and be able to profit immensely. And Sakura Wars kind of embodied that, I think. Yeah, I, uh, I remember I got into, I never played a Sakura Wars in the 90s, but there was this CD. Even most Americans. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that, but there was a CD that came out of like, uh, in America of anime music on a CD. And it was just a series of uh, opening themes to stuff. And Sakura Wars is on there. And I just remember like that, that opening thing. Like, God, I one of my favorite uh, anime openings. I watched a lot of the Sakura Wars anime before I ever played any of the games. Mm. That came here first, the anime. Yeah. And Nadia, you make a cogent point that by moving over as game developers shifted over to PlayStation away from Nintendo. Uh, that opened things up a lot because Sony was a lot less controlling than Nintendo in terms of censorship and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think the way I put it here in the notes is uh, less Nintendo meant more games with naughty no-no anime tropes and killing and what have you. Mm-hmm. Nintendo had loosened its standards by the, by 95. That was around the end of the SNES's lifespan, so uh, that really didn't make the, a big difference. But... I think not only the fact that we had these anime cutscenes that showed like uh, hot tub scenes, which we'd be <laughs> we'd see like twenty thousand times afterwards, but the first time it seemed so scandalous. It also meant that games were cheaper, more accessible, and I think the convergence of anime and games and cheaper prices really kind of helped spread the medium throughout the West as well. Uh, to me, just seeing a 30 second animated cutscene in in the Japanese style, like in say a Mega Man X game, was yeah. it was the greatest thing I'd ever seen back then. Now I can go back and watch it, like yeah, it looks all right, I guess. Yeah. It made me think Wild Arms was good for a while. Yeah, <laughs> hey, Wild Arms is good. No, no dissing Wild Arms on this show. I think one of Thank them you, is Bob. good. I appreciate you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like Wild Arms four. That's it. It had a well. The first game had a fantastic intro. That's oh yeah, the, uh, oh yeah. Argument there. Great song, even though it's totally remembers the dang intro <laughs> it was so good and it was so special at the time because like henry said there was really nothing else like it and for me being a Mega Man slash Mega Man x fan seeing those animated intros just just blew me away well let's remember some anime now so i think that so i have a bunch of shows that were very big in the 90s on the, this list and some of the accompanying games and maybe the one that i kind of want to start with is magic knight ray earth because I don't feel like you can talk about 90s JRPGs without talking about the very last game to come out on the Sega Saturn in North America, which arrived courtesy of Working Designs, which was a pretty, well, they were a very hardworking publishing house. And there's, I feel like you could do an entire podcast on this particular game because there's so much to dig into. It's one of the biggest localization projects the company like had ever undertaken at that point. It basically broke Working Designs' relationship with Sega and pushed them toward uh, the PlayStation. There were crazy things like the source code got erased uh, from (laughs) one of their hard drives, so they had to almost rewrite it from scratch, including creating their own map editor. Wow, man. It's completely bonkers. (laughs) Seriously. Did you guys ever do a Retronauts on it, uh, Bob? Uh, no, we did a Retronauts about Working Designs and Victor Ireland, the CEO and president. Uh, he was on it. 
He just oh, happened to be oh, in town. Oh. So that was that was eight years ago. I think uh, I feel like they're kind of non-existent now. I think they brought out one of the Class of Heroes games or something like that. They were uh, like Monkey yeah, Paw so, yeah. game, I thought, was uh, the new publishing thing Ireland did. Um, I, I don't... think Monkey Paw's related, but I don't even know if they're around anymore. I know they like brought out Tomba and they, they made like a Burger Time uh, remake or something yeah. like that. But this is like uh, early teens. But long, long ago. I, you know, back then, I, I, I was on the ground floor with this Magic Knight Rare thing because, like, it, me and my brother really wanted it really bad. Like, the first time we saw uh, a preview for it in a magazine, we're like, oh my god, a game looks like this? And we just, something about the characters, we'd never read a clamp anything before, uh, but just seeing the style was so fresh to us you know now when i look at the just the cover art, i art i'm like oh yeah i see all the tropes here it's the regular girl and the popular girl and the smart girl and but also i cute mascot and the cute mascot but i also didn't understand the ways it undercut the expectations of uh of rpg tropes in in the story and i just thought it was super cool at the time and my brother he had a pre-order at babbage's for literally three years like yeah. <laughs> and, and he did he has he had a physical copy i should check in with my brother to see if he he still holds on to it because it's i would bet he could get pretty good money for it on ebay it came out in late 98 this game came out after ocarina of time came out mm. for the saturn oh. <laughs> yeah very very oh late my God, that's insane yeah that is insane and and also well, Saturn was basically dead at this point too. Yeah. Oh I, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. It was like my brother had just played Shining Force three, and knowing he'd only get a third of it uh, in America, and then here comes Magic Knight Rare Earth, long last. We've had, like he had aged, I think, from uh, ten to thirteen in that time. It took, but and also and he was I, still excited. Yeah, he was. He was. Well, and I'd also been reading the Magic Nerd Ray Earth comic. The Magic Knight Ray Earth comics in Mixazine, the uh, the first American uh, comic uh, collection of Japanese comics, like published Japanese style. So you're a big fan of Magic Knight Ray Earth then? Because I feel like if there's an anime that kind of embodies the 90s outside of Evangelion, in some ways it's Magic Knight Ray Earth. Like it's very much of a time and a place. That Yeah, the style, the aesthetic style, absolutely. That and I feel like Slayers as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think Magic Knight Rare captures a lot like the the stylized character designs are very much the, you know, the sharper points and the skinnier faces of the 90s that you saw uh, popularized in Evangelion and uh, uh, Utena as well. Like uh, Magic Knight Rare kind of followed that. And I mean, the clamp style is is such a uh, its own set of tropes, too. Plus, plus it is. I, I remember just early in reading it. It's like. Oh, the somebody says, "Hey, is it Mithril the magical entity?" And then a character says, "Like, well, that's not what we call the uh, hard to find material around here. We call it blend." They're like, "Oh, I guess this isn't just a regular RPG world." And then there's a big twi- <laughs> and there's a big twist at the end too, which I, I don't feel like spoiling, mm-hmm. but but I guess I kind of just winked to it just now. <laughs> They had some major look. They had some major licensing problems with this game. Like they couldn't actually get the theme song, so they kept the the actual like song, but then they put an English lyrics over it. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like it, but it's just it's actually technically a different song. They that did that rough. with Lunar too, though, as I recall. 
Oh, yeah, I wonder if it's one way to get around so, uh, song licensing issues. That happens is. a lot with uh, Japanese games, especially like the Tales of games. They would have their own like J-pop uh, single that the the intro would play along to, but they'd have to take that out and just write an instrumental track for the American release. They also subtly changed the names of the actual characters. Oh, they did? Yeah. Um, like, they would remove a couple of letters, and so it sounded almost the same, but not quite the same. <laughs> to make them not as Japanese? Uh, not as Japanese, so that they wouldn't infringe on the actual license. There, there was a lot going on oh, with this particular okay, game. Oh, yeah. wow. Another game that was maybe tied to working designs was the Slayer's Royal 1 and 2 uh, games. So yeah, Slayer's was another like very 90s anime series. Uh, Bob knows quite a bit about it. And there was a big push by working to work it there. Apparently there were people within working designs who really, really wanted to bring it over, but it just never actually happened, which is maybe for the best, but it's kind of an interesting RPG. If you read through uh, a thread that I will link in the show notes, where one of the, th- one of the quirks of it is that, so Lena inverse and everybody, they're all very, she's already a very powerful mage. So there's, she's not leveling up exactly, she has access to all of her spells from the get-go. And it's much more about like how you use them and everything. So having these fully formed from characters from the very start kind of makes for a, a unique experience. It's definitely a quirk of playing an anime RPG, I want to say. Hmm. Bob, you're a big fan of Slayers. Tell, talk us um, through the appeal of that particular show. It's uh, it was a hit uh, in Japan, of course, and like kind of a mini hit in America. I think probably like a hit out of VHS at the time. He like sold a hundred thousand copies on uh, per volume or something like that. But it was cool in that uh, it was it came at a time when I had been playing a bunch of JRPGs, and uh, Slayers is a uh, very good you know fantasy adventure series, but one that also is self aware and sends up a lot of um, you know the tropes of RPGs and fantasy while still you know telling a very good story and developing its own world in very cool ways. I just remember how Slayers, to me, that defines early 90s internet culture because everyone named themselves after a Slayer character. Mm. Everyone had avatars and, and, of course, forum signatures from Slayers. Yeah, it was um, a very distinctive style that I think just really embedded itself in my brain. And it's uh, over time, like, I think there's still a lot of appeal. I'm actually rereading the novels right now because they've just been re-released. And I think a lot of the appeal of Slayers is that the characters are fairly unique and that, especially the protagonist, Lena Inverse, it feels like she is still one of the strongest heroines in anime uh, because her she's basically like a, a teenage Scrooge McDuck in that <laughs> she is a, a total bastard, but she's got a heart of gold, but she is also super, super greedy. So it was weird to see these, these attributes in a female main character especially one who isn't sexualized but she's still feminine like if you look yeah. at the the actual anime opening she's like you know wearing a nice dress or like she'll be like putting on her earring or everything but she's also like really cool i like her a lot yeah she's great and uh i think there was just so much crossover appeal with uh, both men and women just because of her um and i think it was a show that appealed to everybody and it's uh it's actually i think the 30th anniversary of the novels is this year i think it was 91 they started being made so it's having a sort of renaissance in japan and like lena is uh, making appearances in every crappy mobile game like you could play any waifu (laughs) game she'll probably be in it Uh but that's why the novels are being re-released 
And uh, the last time she was in an anime series, so the original anime series, uh, there was one in 95, one in 96, and one in 97. There was a revival two-season series in 90, I'm sorry, 2008, but nothing since then. But there's still a lot of things, a lot of material they could adapt for future anime series. My my friends what? who got me into Final Fantasy, like who the, my friend who told me play Final Fantasy VI, which was my first Final Fantasy, he was also the guy who said borrow my Slayers tapes. Like they, he he was a giant Slayers fan. Well, Slayers was, and Lena was the one who had the Dragon Slave move, right? That's right. Yes. Okay. Uh, I just remember that because there were uh, problems in the Harry Potter fandom with like people inventing wizards who could do things like Dragon Slave and <laughs> just pissed people off. I like that there are stats. Like uh, custom stats, like, okay, so you have Lena, who has your typical stuff like spirit and guts and motivation, but then you have Naga, who's kind of her main uh, rival, I want to say, who her hers are attitude, butt, and boobs. <laughs> <laughs> Those are my stats. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Nadia. Uh, Bob is a Naga the Coward. Serpent hater. Go. I know. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a disliker of Naga the Serpent, even though she is an original character created by the author. She is not in any of the, the mainline books or main TV series, and I think that's the like opposite of what I want to see in Slayers. It's just like the, the complete fetish character <laughs> is summed up with mm-hmm. Naga, uh, and I wasn't as into that as I was the rest of the cast. She was really silly, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the show could be silly, but... And then Gowrie's is uh, technique, intuition, and full stomach. Yeah. <laughs> That's cute. <laughs> I like a I like a good licensed uh, game that really leans into the source material, and I don't know that you can necessarily call Slayers Royal One and Two good, quote unquote. But at least it doesn't feel generic. It feels like it's kind of trying to lean into the source material at least a little bit in the way that it uses its individual mechanics. It is funny that uh, these have not been translated because. So many things are still being translated. If you go to romhacking.net, you'll be surprised by just how many new things are being translated, like uh, 3DS games, DS games, PS2 games, PS3 games. But uh, I guess these are not popular enough, or maybe Saturn or PlayStation stuff from this era might be too hard to uh, localize in the way they want to. But yeah, only the Super Famicom Slayers RPG has been translated. I mean, in the case of Slayers Royal, maybe Slayers just doesn't have enough of a fan base to... Uh, necessarily get a fan translation group together. Yeah, I think it was big within the bubble of anime fans from the 90s, but compared to yeah. what big shows are now, it's not. And if, if this didn't get translated in the early 2000s with so many of the other things, it probably won't get one now because those people have moved on. A game that did get translated, but maybe didn't lean as much into the source material as Slayers was Sailor Moon. Uh, Sailor Moon, another story, did not come over here. It did ultimately get a fan translation. It was for the Super Nintendo. And, I mean, everybody's heard of Sailor Moon. It was a genre-defining show in 1995. And the game, sadly, wasn't very good. I I think that it kind of reflects a lot of the ways that an anime RPG can go wrong. Um, It vaguely resembles basically Final Fantasy IV in the way that the characters develop and everything. Um, It has the role mechanics. It is fairly lazy in the way that it structures its story. Like most of it is like old Sailor Moon enemies from the past are being brought back in yeah. their time travel One and they those. have to fight against them. So now you get to fight Queen Barrel in the game. Okay. You know, it really makes my blood run cold to know that I played through the fan translation of this over 20 years ago. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Why? Uh, that's just a long time. 
because when that fan translation was made, the game was probably what four or five years old. Now uh, the fan mm-hmm. translation is twenty one years old. That's wild. What did you think of it at the time? Uh, I had endless amounts of free time. I think I played it over like a high school summer break. So just like, hey, another 16-bit JRPG I never played before. If I played it now, I might have more of a critical eye, but it was fun just to play a new 16-bit RPG at the time. That's fair. They were kind of scarce at the time. I mean, literally, and it was pretty too, right? I mean, we were talking earlier about how it could have, a, a Super Nintendo game could have really nice sprites that resemble the source material, but... And Sailor Moon definitely embodied that. So if nothing else, a lot of these anime RPGs, they can traffic in looks, if not necessarily actual quality and mechanics. And and to me, something about the Super NES slash Super Famicom color palette is just perfect for the bright and colorful world of Sailor Moon. Like just the mm-hmm. the whites and blues and yellows of that world. And it it's it shines so much more on uh in the super in what i think of as the super nes color palettes yeah i'd much rather play this than the number of sailor moon fighting games because uh retronauts a few years ago we did a sailor moon and dragon ball games episode and there are so many sailor moon fighting games and most of them are pretty bad <laughs> wow it's just like wow we have a bunch of girls together let's make them cat fight <laughs> they have enemies they can fight no no they gotta fight each other <laughs> There were a lot of Ranma one half and Dragon Ball fighting games as well, and I don't think either of those were very good either. No, I mean we got the Ranma one of the Ranma ones here, two of them, I guess technically. Yeah, yeah. that's the one shocking example of an anime game coming to America while anime was still a very niche thing, but mm-hmm. keeping the license. Yeah, yeah, but but once you play it, you're like, oh, this is not as good as like the the best uh, fighting games I'm playing, or even like a middle of the road fighting game like uh, me and my friends who couldn't have loved ronma more when we played it we're like this is not as good as dark stalkers or whatever the most recent 2d fighting game we just played uh, i think ronma that was the first time like i heard about the series was through the game not hmm. through the anime series itself it's on the shelf when we went to go rent a game you're like maybe i should pick this up uh and it looks kind of weird I have said in the past that I would love for Arc System Works to do a Gundam fighting game in the style of Gundam Wing Endless Duel. Oh, that would be great. So Arc System Works, Cat, are they one of like 20 companies that now only help make Smash Brothers? (laughs) (laughs) They did Dragon Ball Fighters, and that was a great game. Okay. Because whenever I, I load up uh, Smash Brothers, I see all the company names. I'm like, oh my god, that's what happened to them? I could be thinking of Game Freak. Not Game Freak, but Game Arts. The Lunar people. I think oh. they are like in the Smash Brothers factory right now. I, I Smash think so. Brothers factory. <laughs> there is no escape. You can check it anytime. Like you can never leave. Uh, the yeah, Gundam Wing. It's uh, it's funny to see the Gundam stuff in uh, Super Robot Wars. I didn't for I didn't play uh, Super Robot Wars until the most recent one that came out on Switch. Uh, uh, I think the 2019 one and. Just seeing all the references in there, like, oh man, if you're if, if you don't know Gundam, this doesn't make a lick of sense to you. <laughs> Which I didn't. I did not watch Gundam, but I did take great pleasure in how years and years later, uh, which was just a, a couple years ago in our timeline, people, younger kids, were passing around the scene where Hiro rips up the letter, the invitation, and saying without context and saying, "What is this? What is going on? Is this Twilight? What is?" <laughs> what is happening so they got a, a whole education about gundam wing and i think that was just really lovely a nice nice coming together of generations it, it's not too different from uh from twilight to be honest it really isn't <laughs> <laughs> let's not kid ourselves yeah <laughs> 
Wow. Well, at least there's no body horror in Gundam Wing. That's true. Will, there's plenty in Twilight. I will say that if you play, say, Super Robot Wars X on the Nintendo Switch, which has the Endless Waltz uh, game, uh, show from uh, Gundam Wing, you can pick it up and be like, oh, I know this particular series and I'm enjoying these characters. But then over time, as you're playing the game, you start to get to know other you know, Max as well. You're like, oh, what is this Dumbine thing? Oh, what is this Mazinger thing? And the next thing you know, you're finding a whole bunch of new shows that you are really getting into. Like Super Robot Wars has introduced me to so many different uh, mecha anime oh, over me the too. years. And Gundam Wing has definitely featured very heavily. It's very popular still here in North America, but also quite popular in Japan I, mm. as well, I want to say, because it pops up quite regularly in Super Robot Wars. I was actually wondering if uh, Gundam Wing, since it was the Gundam Wing, sorry, since it was the Gundam series that made Gundam quite popular in the West, if Japan looks at us and says, why are you all upset with that particular Gundam series? Because I do know that there is some confusion in Japan about why some rando Power Rangers Sentai <laughs> series became like hugely popular here. And in Japan, it just kind of made a dent and went on its way. Well, well it's I the same with Fultron, right? I mean, yeah. Go Lion like is nothing over there but over here voltron is a big deal i think same with power rangers like zoo rangers the the source material it wasn't not popular there but i don't think it was the biggest uh, sentai show but why well, i can tell you i learned this from after we did our gundam wing podcast that a commenter alerted me to this that when they did the um i believe it's called gundam build fighters but was about it was basically their toy show their Yu-Gi-Oh show of like here's how you build your own gundam toys uh. um when they did the show uh in one episode they met the uh, champion from america and his i believe his gundam was a tall geese from wing and so it was of course yeah. it, it was definitely the <laughs> anime really it was the anime recognizing the like yes we know <laughs> america loves gundam wing more than any other gundam i think i mean uh it's a good show but i think parts of that show were so cynically designed to be appealing to different demographics like especially women yeah. so i don't think there's any question as to why it was popular really mm -hmm. yeah well like you pick your favorite boyfriend i mean it came it came in america at the height of our boy band movement as well yeah, so that's the true. boy band yes. gundam uh totally it came at just the right time boy band with angst it was perfect <laughs> i think super robot wars w was actually designed in part to be released in north america following in the wake of the og games from atlas because it had like all the shows that would be laser targeted to appeal to north americans it had voltron it had gundam wing at full metal panic it had um a whole bunch of different shows that americans would be like oh yeah i know that show it had gundam seed so but then of course atlas was like uh no we're not gonna pay the license oh, that's really to bad. release this one but oh. it was the first one that I ever played, and I really enjoyed it at the time. And it's quite accessible. So if you're if you want to pick up a Super Robot Wars game that's not on the Switch, maybe consider that on the DS. Is there a Super Robot Wars game with uh, the big O? Yes, uh, Super Robot Wars Z actually. Hmm. Oh, sweet! I remember yep. seeing the uh, the Cowboy Bebop characters also early in the Switch one that I played, which I was like, "Wow, look, they're spun. yeah." It was in T. Yeah. Yes, it was a kind of a pity though because uh, Cowboy Bebop in that game like harlock and cowboy bebop should be amazing together and somehow they just don't figure very prominently into the story and it feels like a huge missed opportunity i feel like they just stuck cowboy bebop in there to be like well this will this will grab the attention of international like the importers yeah i mean i I've, I've always gotten the sense that cowboy bebop is like a nothing in japan compared to, it is. to america yeah in in japan like when i was teaching in japan 
I asked my students, some of whom were huge fans of anime and knew like it very well. I was like, Cowboy Bebop, like, are you a big fan? They're like, what is Cowboy Bebop? Really? <laughs> like, wow. Okay. Like, it's hard to find anybody over there who knows it because it aired very late at night and kind of disappeared. And it was like a prestige project. Mm, and yeah, but ultimately it just hit much harder over here. It aired like on a on a prestige station too. You had to pay for right, like the satellite network. Yeah, it was like satellite, and it got canceled fast too. Like, yeah, it was. Uh, it, it was only thanks to the American success, really, that it got to have a movie. We were talking a little bit about the fighting games that were associated with Gundam Wing and Dragon Ball Z and Rama. Those uh, games also got RPGs. Uh, Dragon Ball Z had uh, Super Saiyan Densetsu, and that was on the Super Nintendo. And then Rama went and half had uh, Treasure of the Red Cat Gang. Um, and this one should stand out to you, Nadia. It resembles a little bit of Breath of Fire, the, the Rama one-half game. Cool. Do you get to turn into dragons? <laughs> no, it's mostly panda. in terms of the inventory. It's too bad you can't turn into <laughs> Though if Maybe if they fell into the pool of the drowned dragon, that would be kind of cool. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I know that Rama and one-half like, involves a lot of transformation, so uh, I see how that would fit in there. I am uh, disappointed it doesn't seem to feature in there more. I should have checked that one out. I did not. Uh, on, on the Dragon Ball one, it's such a simple turnover to it because it, I, it Toriyama's look is Dragon Quest. Like, and it's Absolutely. the, it is such the easiest bridge in the world. Like, well, this is what a JRPG looks like to so many people is just Toriyama's art style. So why don't we just do Dragon Ball? And on top of that, Dragon Ball's chapter system is so simple. Mm. It is so easily adaptable into a series of stories for, for an RPG. I think there were three Dragon Ball Famicom games that were just RPGs using like a card-based system for combat. Yeah, yeah right. I forgot that. <laughs> boo, boo card-based combat. <laughs> Uh, but yeah no the the dragon ball rpgs they make so much sense and i will say uh cat i i see you mentioned you've never seen an episode of dragon ball not one well really? as, yeah it just never appealed to me i i will tell you if you were to engage in dragon ball content you mm. will appreciate the dragon ball references that are in every dragon quest game way more like oh okay true. that makes sense yeah there are so many in Dragon Quest Eleven. There were multiple. I had just reread Dragon Ball, uh, the original, um, all the pre Saiyan stuff, and then when I played Eleven, I'm like, holy crap! This whole thing, this the, especially the tournament arc that has little, literally your grandfather fighting you wearing a mask. I was like, this is this is a Dragon Ball reference. They uh, and all and, the goofy ass contenders. Yes, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. It's. It's just uh, you You will appreciate Dragon Quest more if you uh, engage with Dragon Ball. All right. We are running out of time. But before we finish up, I wanted to highlight one last game that didn't really have an RPG. And it was always very frustrating to me. And that was Neon Genesis Evangelion, which somehow has a very poor kind of game lineage which has always confused me because it seems like a very rich setting to put a game in. But mostly we got visual novels. We got a very bad N64 game and we got a bunch mm. of appearances in Super Robot Wars. And I'm just kind of like, 
what the heck happened? God, the whole thing is about <laughs> killing God and all this stuff. Like everything is crucifying everything. Why would you not put that in an RPG where everyone crucifies everyone? I, I highlighted the the last Ava game that I can think of was uh, the PSP game uh, Sound Impact, where it was a retelling of the entire Evangelion story via pretty okay rhythm games. It was made by Grasshopper. I've only yeah. seen video of it. It looks like the best Evangelion game that was ever made. And and the reason I think partially it was visual novels is because like uh, Gynax published visual novels or dating sims like that was there. Uh, I believe what it was Princess Trainer or whatever was there. Uh, Princess Maker. Princess Maker. That ah, that was Gynax's big hit as a as a game a publisher. So once Evangelion hits it big, they're like, well, yeah, Girlfriend of Steel. That makes sense. Just do that. And and plus it was in the shadow of Tokimeki Memorial. Uh, so I can I can see why that's the direction they went in, in instead of an RPG. I think it's just also what uh, what the developers they knew were good at. They knew how to make that type of game. And uh, I did, you know, there was one RPG I wanted to mention too, real quick, was the uh, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure one. Uh, that was on. Uh, it was on Super Famicom. I just rewatched a, a gameplay of it, and honestly, it's like it's like half adventure game, and the combats with cards, which makes sense because tarot cards are a key element of the story. But the real reason I want to bring up JoJo's Bizarre Adventure is because if you watch the uh, recent anime adaptation that um, almost verbatim does the comics, or you read the comics, once you read them, you're like. Oh my God, I recognize everything that has been referencing it in video games for the last 20, 30 years. And, but, <laughs> but I'll especially say if you watch uh, JoJo Part 4 Diamond is Unbreakable, you will realize Persona 4 took everything from Diamond is Unbreakable. Right? Uh, but it did not take Savage Garden. Uh, that's true. It did, they, they did. Oh, oh my God, Persona and Savage Garden. Oh, I, I just melted inside. <laughs> the. Oh. Iraqi is much more in, back. <laughs> Araki is much more into um, international music than I think the the Persona team is. Sorry to go back to Evangelion really quick. I was looking at all the games. There's so many games, and I think actually the best game might be something called Detective Evangelion. So uh, I'll, I'll read you part <laughs> of the summary of this, and I really want this to be translated. I want to play it. So this is featuring an original story in the style of a comedic whodunit murder mystery. Whoa. In this game, Shinji, controlled by the player, picks up clues on a series of murders and other events and uses them in Ace Attorney-inspired trial sections. Ooh. So uh, wow. somebody localize this for free and then give it to me yeah simple okay. request <laughs> well, i think that's a reasonable request yes man i want that now too yeah uh. there was an ace attorney evangelion game i don't how was i not aware of this <laughs> so in super robot wars f uh that game has evangelion in it and shinji doesn't want to get into the ava because you know he's having issues of course and bright who is the commander of the white base in the original gundam and is famous for slapping amuro really hard slaps shinji mm. and shinji responds by being like not even my father hits me but then bright becomes the father figure that shinji never had and shinji becomes the greatest badass in the universe wow, wow that's, an interesting that's all it took <laughs> just one slap across what a the twist. page so they figured I out you're gonna tell me i thought you're gonna tell me shinji hits him back 
<laughs> no way. No. Shinji wouldn't do that. Was, this is Shinji we're talking about. That yeah. game. I know, but that would have been a surprise. It sounds like that game really figured out nature versus nurture. <laughs> uh, now i i think you you mentioned me too kat there was another one where like shinji in one of the super robot wars he gets uh he gets uh, like an older brother figure who's like come on shinji get some confidence like uh, yeah i think that might might have been in super robot wars v uh because i'm pretty sure that had evangelion in it and i want to say that the yamato people were heavily involved uh with that so oh yeah i could see uh... also that had uh shinji plot that had shinji plus uh when they were doing the positron rifle uh to take out the the diamond shaped angel uh they plug it into the wave motion gun from the yamato instead of the tokyo uh the tokyo net power grid in one of the Oh, that game is so nerdy, and I love it. That's, that <laughs> is extremely nerdy. <laughs> One final thing I really enjoy about these anime licensed games is that when you're playing these games and there's voiceover, it is unless if if they're still alive, it is always the voice actor from the series. It's not like Tom Hanks' yeah. brother is playing Woody. <laughs> if they're if they're making an Evangelion game and it's a typing game everyone's on board mm-hmm. they're prof- they're professionals these voice actors I like that I, that's the they type really are. Yeah. that's the type of hiring practice that they try to carry over into kingdom hearts at least with the non-disney people they're like that you know Haley joel osmond is still uh he's still sora decades later it helps that bandai namco has basically a monopoly on so many of these licensed properties and so when they make a game they can be like hey voice actor go be in this game for hiring you i i do blame bandai namco a little about why we don't get as many anime rpgs now it's because like they they figured out what the the third person action style the jump force the all the naruto games like those are the ones that sell the most they don't need to make them there was the last like burst of anime rpgs i recall was when on you know the ds and so in little into the 3ds are like we could make an rpg still with these things like attack of the saiyans that ds game all right really is is a great example of that like it is like a chrono trigger uh <laughs> version of that story all right it's time to wrap up but a question the final question that I have is, what did anime mean for RPGs in the 90s and vice versa? Um, I'll kind of start. I'll say that mostly I see it as a bit of a missed opportunity. Like, anime definitely started to go big in the mid-90s, but most of the games listed above never made it west for reasons that we had already talked about. And then, what's more, most of these games suffered kind of from licensed game syndrome, being heavily outsourced to studios like uh, Tose or Toes. They looked pretty, but they were kind of empty calories. Like, a really good Evangelion RPG might have cashed in on the twin crazes of Final Fantasy VII and Evangelion, but instead we got Xenogears, which isn't a bad consolation prize, honestly. <laughs> uh, I, I agree with you, Kat, and I still think that it really did a lot to kind of merge our understanding of anime, merge the medium, and expose more people to it. Uh, at the time, a lot of what we saw seemed really, really special, and going back to it, we look back and say, oh, well, you know, it was all kind of cheesy and kind of silly, but uh, it meant a lot at the time, but yeah, a lot of the anime uh, licenses that did come over here uh, weren't fantastic, and as you said, very few came over here in the first place, but uh, it, to me it was more about people finally acknowledging and game developers in the West finally acknowledging that, hey, here's what anime looks like. It's kind of fun. It's kind of goofy. Uh, let's not be ashamed of Akira Toriyama anymore. Huh. 
Yeah, the, for me, these were very fun to discover after the fact, like a little over 20 years ago when I could just go online, uh, find out what games didn't come over here, download the ROM, hopefully find a translation and play it. That's a much better that thing than having to pay like $60 for a not good game and not like it. So it was fun to be like a detective after the fact going back to 1995 and saying, oh, look, this anime I liked has a game. Let's play it. And then not spending any money on a kind of bad game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i uh when i look back on them now i think especially the popular uh anime series of the 90s i think in, impacted the rpg storytelling of the people who were making the rpgs even if they weren't adapting them they were going like well evangelion talked about this so we can deal with that in this game or it mm -hmm. I, I i think it led the way for other rpg developers i i look back on the rpgs that were made out of anime adaptations and i they they make me miss the diversification of genres you'd get just because like i as i just complained i feel like uh, most anime games are just from the third person action factory which is a type of style i'm i'm not that into or they're or they're a muso game or they're a fighting game and or tactics game okay yes sometimes they're a tactics game too but i i especially when the games have so much uh, the, the anime they're adapted the anime that's getting adapted has so much more story than action in it that rpgs fit a lot more uh for them in in, in depending on the 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 tale that is being adapted so i i miss that i agree with everything you said bob and henry um <laughs> but i guess it's just a different time for anime uh, RPGs and RPGs in general, because so many places are kind of allergic to the idea of making a, a turn-based RPG these days. Yeah. They are very much going for a larger audience. And now I think we don't know about them because they don't come over here, but like every big anime probably just gets a gacha game and that's it. Mm. Oh, yeah. yeah, they're all going mobile, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, just like how there's not, there's, there's, there was a new DuckTales uh, cartoon but it didn't get a video game on a console it got stuff that was like we got in our childhoods it got phone stuff same with like spongebob gets phone games now he doesn't get it just for get him that three game and that's that's the end of that yeah yeah well on that note i think that's it but i think there's also a lot more to kind of delve into because against all odds i find a lot of this kind of fascinating just because i feel like there's so much influence both ways between video games and especially rpgs on anime and then vice versa so i mean we can talk about the 2000s next but mm -hmm. in the meantime thanks to bob and henry for coming on the show really quickly tell us where to find your amazing show and oh. how to follow you on twitter i could talk about i actually didn't mention it up front but i could talk about my other show and henry can promote our together show that we do uh i do retronauts of course if you listen to acts of the blood god you have to know about retronauts but it's a classic gaming podcast going on for uh this is our 16th year now Ooh. in 2021 Ooh. so uh maybe 15th actually it's wow. 15th i lied so, <laughs> so everybody don't applaud for me but uh yeah it's at retronauts.com <laughs> uh, patreon.com slash retronauts as of this recording Speaking of ROM hacks, a recent episode inspired a ROM hack that now has box art. So, oh my gosh, um, yeah. Our friend of the show, Ian Jones Cordy, he did the cartoon OKKO OK, Let's Be Heroes, and someone did a uh, ROM hack of Bugs Bunny's Crazy Castle 2, but put in all of the OK, uh, OKKO characters in the games, and Ian did box art for the game. So, we have brought in an official ROM hack into the world. I'm so proud of us and Ian and the ROM hack creator. It's amazing. It, uh, yeah, and, uh, and me and Bob... Uh, I've also talked to Ian on our 
podcast together what a cartoon where every week we cover an animated series super in-depth go through the history and chat about uh, the making of it like ian was on our sonic the hedgehog one about the saturday morning series oh, that was great and, and, uh, good old and, uh, and also every week we do our chronological exploration of the simpsons called talking simpsons uh we are right now doing our 12th season but also uh we are revisiting much more in detail the second season because it's also the 30th anniversary of that so each week we're going throughout 2021 one episode of season two then one episode of season 12 and it is a ton of fun and we have a giant back catalog of podcasts you can listen to and a ton more exclusives on our patreon at patreon.com slash talking simpsons where me and bob do it full time and if you want to hear that five hour end of evangelion podcast it is just a ten dollar subscription away my friend and hey if you want to listen to me talk more about gundam wing i did an episode of what a cartoon about it yeah that was a lot of fun man that feels mm -hmm. it wasn't that long ago but it feels like a long time ago and also original oh, gundam like right pandemic so. oh yeah we did mobile suit gundam as well yeah there you go thanks to bob and henry for dropping by go check out their amazing podcast and let's continue on to the track of the week okay nadia it's time for the track of the week the segment in which we pick a track from our favorite rpgs because music is so important for understanding the genre we love and this week we've got a classic for you a banger let's listen in Yes, this week's song is Scars of Time from Chrono Cross, a song that is iconic to the point that I can't believe it hasn't been our track of the week yet. I am stunned we have not done it for track of the week because this is the iconic RPG song. It feels like everybody knows what this song is, even if they don't really know much about Chrono Cross. Is it the iconic RPG song or is it just really, really good? I've heard people say like it is like their absolute favorite song. It is one of my favorites by far. And... Uh, the way it goes with the opening, that really kind of cheesy 90s CGI cutscene opening, it's also perfect and also very, very 90s. And I, I love Scars of Time so much, except for the time I saw it in, during Video Games Live. And it was fantastic at first, but then Tommy Tallarico came out with his damn guitar and <laughs> just kind of inserted himself in the, in the music. And it's like, okay, thanks, dude. Uh, I, I like the violins, but uh, you do you, man. I really enjoyed the video games live rendition of it. That was the one I saw. And Tommy Tallarico didn't come out and guitar the whole thing up? No. Um, it just sounds really nice, you know. Um, and that's the one that I included in our playlist, which is over on Spotify. It's the best RPG music. And I collected a bunch of music from Chrono Cross and Persona, Falcom, that kind of thing. Because that's what's mostly available on Spotify in general. But if you're looking for some really nice RPG music, you should go check out that playlist. And so that's that's why I wanted to pick out Scars of Time, because that is on that list. That makes sense. Uh, to be honest, even if you don't look at the video games live version of it, there are really fantastic live renditions of it all over YouTube. You should look up a few. Some of them are really incredible. 
It was, of course, composed by Yasunori Mitsuda, a composer who really needs no introduction, one of the great RPG composers ever. Absolutely. And this is one of his best works, which is saying a lot because he has a lot of best works behind him. It's part of the opening cutscene, I believe. Yes, it is the opening cutscene. Have, have you ever seen that cutscene? It's extremely cheesy, extremely 90s, extremely square soft. But what the heck, it, it's lovable for what it is. I remember really liking it. Oh, yeah, it, it's it's good, again, for what it is. But when I look back at it now, I'm like, yeah, it's a little bit uh, silly, but I love it. Okay, that is our track of the week. If you have a track of the week that you would like to hear, do us a favor. Send me an email at cat at bloodgodpod.com, and we may include your submission in the show. Okay, before we wrap up, let's jump over to the mailbag, Nadia. We have a, tra- a channel over on our Discord devoted to the mailbag. Amusingly, people seem to like to talk in that channel as well. <laughs> it can get a little messy, but uh, this one is from Jerkface Jenkins. They ask, what does everyone consider overboard for those War of Attrition final boss fights? An example for, example for me is Persona 3 Portable, where I spent over an hour fighting Nyx, going through the 14 Arcana cycles, and then got one-shotted. In retrospect, I guess I was underleveled, but I've yet to summon up the resolve to try again. I might also play the Fez version so that I can enjoy the quote-unquote fun of not being able to control the rest of the party and hope that they can heal me when I need it, question mark? So, what about you, Nadia? Are there any War of Attrition final boss fights that spring immediately to mind? Probably for me it was Secret of Mana because that Mm -hmm. was my first RPG-ish game in a long time, so there were a lot of tropes and mechanics I wasn't too familiar with. Plus... Secret of Mana, for, for as much as I love it, was extremely obtuse at times. And one of the times it was most obtuse was during the final battle against the Mana Beast. You had to cast a certain kind of magic twice and do all this other stuff that no one really told you how to do it. Uh, you got a kind of a vague hint and you would hopefully figure it out. But if you didn't do all this stuff, you could still beat the Mana Beast, but it took so, so much longer and it took me forever to beat that thing because I had no idea what I was doing the first time around. And uh, thank God the music in that final battle is just so incredible because otherwise I just would have given up. I've always felt that the final bo- battles or a lot of raid battles in like WoW and Final Fantasy fourteen, but especially Final Fantasy eleven, do go overboard. If I'm spending over an hour fighting a particular boss, that's kind of a, that's too much, I think. Yeah. Uh, 14, I have not done any of the really savage raids, so I've never spent more than, say, 15 minutes on a boss. But yes, there are people out there who do those raids that last for an hour, and good for you. I, I applaud your energy, but I just, I can't do it because the thought of maybe getting wiped out at the very end and losing that hour it makes me want to cry. I remember hearing that The Last Remnant had a really nasty final boss battle in that regard. I never play. I never heard about this uh, this boss battle. But uh, do you know anything about it? It's just hearsay. That's. I just remember somebody mentioning it a while ago. Yeah, there are definitely, unfortunately, RPGs where the programmers thought difficult means sit there for hours and hours and chip away at a life bar. I mean, even with games like Final Fantasy VIII, it almost goes overboard with the number of forms that you have to go through with Ultimecia. I actually heard a really interesting tidbit earlier uh, this week. Illusion of Gaia, which is more of an action RPG than an RPG, it apparently had a much, much harder boss battle originally. And this has only just recently been discovered, like earlier in 2020, where the way it goes in Secret of... Uh, sorry, the way it goes in Illusion of Gaia, as we know it now, is you fight this comet face, and then you fight this Gaia tree, and it's over, and it's actually quite easy. There were 
three other forms, and they were kind of nightmarish. There was like this two-headed form that you had to beat. Then you had to beat this like floating head, and then you had to beat this floating melting head. So you were beating five five forms in a row, and that is not a joke, especially since Illusion of Gaia has extremely limited number of healing items. And once you earn those healing items, you can't get any more. You can't buy them or anything like that. So good luck to you if you want to take that on because people have reconstructed the battle uh, via ROM. So go for it if you're feeling brave. Last week, Nadia, we did the console RPG quest for the Nintendo Wii and some of our community had comments over on the Patreon page. Satellite of Love says, man, I'm glad y'all touched on the horrid return on effort quality RPGs and games, period, got on the Wii. It was to the point where owning a Xenoblade or Zack and Wiki was some kind of anathema against the evergreen ever-sellers that made up 90% of everyone's library. Glad the Switch had both that and bow-cup sales for t- little titles that can. And switching and talking about little titles that can, maybe the Blood God can investigate Horizon's Gates sometime during a 2021 drought. Final Fantasy Tactics Gara Building, Sid Meier's Pirate's World, Final Fantasy IV Graphics, Great Tunes. Well, that sounds very interesting. It does, and it's Boku, dear cat, not Bokup. Oh, I'm sorry. My bad. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, my heart grew three sizes. All right, that is the end of Letter Time. If you want to contribute a letter, cat at bloodgodpod.com or leave a note in our mailbag channel over on the Discord. And that is about it for this week's episode of Axe of the Blood God. If you enjoy the show, follow us on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. We're on Twitch at twitch.tv slash catbaileytv. And you can follow the Axe of the Blood God social media channels, which are both Blood God Pod on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the show, we invite you to join our Patreon for just one dollar. We'll be in, we'll get you on to the actual Discord. Five dollars will get you access to Television of the Blood God, and ten dollars and above will get you access to our Pantheon of the Blood God monthly episodes in which we pick an RPG and determine whether it should go into the Pantheon. We will be back next week, as always, to talk more RPG goodness. But until then, for Nadia and Bob and Henry and myself, thanks for listening and happy adventuring. Mm-hmm.